Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. Trent Kling, happy to be joined by a special guest, Leighton Kling, on this week's episode. So instead of just being behind the scenes, Leighton will be on mic as our busy schedules lined up. Coming up on this episode, we're going to be talking specialty retail, Sherwin-Williams and O'Reilly, two retailers we haven't talked about in some time. We'll also look ahead to Dollar Tree expanding their delivery services and two retail property groups releasing earnings next week. A reminder that you can check us out on social media, both Instagram and Twitter, at Retail Podcast. Additionally, if you enjoy the show, if you like what you're hearing, please do give us a rating. Those ratings help others to check us out on whatever podcast platform you may be listening in on. And we're so happy for all of our listeners to be joining us here as we near the conclusion of year six of the Retail Focus podcast. One final shout out, a big shout out going to our new partner, Feedback Loop. You'll hear more about them later on in the show. But for now, it's time for our approximately quarterly look at the automotive retail space as O'Reilly announces a solid summer quarter. This quarter for them ended September 30th, 2021. And you know, while we've talked about general merchandise and grocery retailers seeing a bit of stagnation in aggregate as far as sales are concerned after such a strong summer in 2020, doesn't seem to be the case at least so far for the automotive retail sector and especially Leighton for O'Reilly. Yeah, that's right. And when we dig into the numbers here, we see that O'Reilly delivered a comp sales increase for the third quarter of 6.7%. While that is lower sequentially, year-to-date comps are up 12.9%, so into that double-digit range. We've talked at length about two-year stack numbers for retailers, and O'Reilly's two-year stack looks as good as it does for anybody out there in the retail landscape. Last year's third quarter saw a 16.9% increase. As such, on a two-year stack basis, again, O'Reilly's comps are up 23.6% with no immediate signs of slowing. However, overall sales of the company did see a strong increase as well, an 8% increase or $272 million increase up to $3.48 billion in terms of absolute dollars for their top line revenue. Much of this came from their comp sales increases, but they also experienced a benefit from store expansion. Trent has talked a lot about this in the past. O'Reilly continues to grow via expansion and also renovate existing stores, all while basically closing no stores whatsoever. In fact, they didn't shutter any stores for the third quarter, opening 30. However, fiscal year to date, they only closed about two stores, and now they have 148 more stores now than they did at this time last year. In terms of total store count, they're up to 5,740 in the United States, The complete lack of closures is one reason why those in retail real estate have been so bullish on O'Reilly's in the past few years. Between O'Reilly and AutoZone, they have been two of the hotter commodities on the commercial real estate market, where Advance Auto, let's say, who has been closing stores with regularity in an effort to bring their operations in line after their deal with CarQuest, regularly trades at cap rates one to two points higher than O'Reilly and the aforementioned AutoZone. So we should mention that comps for them don't include sales of specialty machinery, sales to independent parts stores, 
or sales to team members, those O'Reilly team members there making in-house purchases, and they've seen incremental top-line benefits actually from all of those areas. However, specific forms of online sales, they said basically those that do touch their retail outlets were included in the comp number. So two important factors to take into consideration there. This does include also sales from their ship to home program, as well as buy online, pick up and store. As far as the month by month breakdown, Trent, they said September was their strongest month, but none of the months really stood out as far as their typical seasonal cadence is concerned. Gross profit for them did increase in lockstep with net sales up 8% as well. So that's really saying that operationally they're being quite efficient. However, their net income didn't really go in lockstep with that 8% figure growing 6%. The lower growth was as a result of increased selling general and administrative expenses, which we've seen a fair number of retailers note as 2021 wears on. Still, their earnings per share of $8.07 per diluted share was a 14% increase over last year's $7.07. This was a slight, let's say less than 1% beat on analyst estimates, so still pretty good there. The reason their earnings per share grew at a greater rate than the net income was largely due to fewer outstanding shares out there. O'Reilly, of course, publicly traded company, and that's why we have this information. But they've been doing a lot of share buybacks, Trent. 75 million shares outstanding last year, just 69 million shares this year. So about a difference of 6 million shares they bought back. So Leighton covering the numbers there. Let's talk about some other information they brought up on the call for the company. One thing I did want to add to Leighton's point regarding O'Reilly and AutoZone being hot commodities on the commercial real estate market. Oftentimes you get a sense of not just the market's bullishness on a company, but just the overall sense of security and growth surrounding a company. So you'll see right now retailers like O'Reilly, AutoZone, Sherwin-Williams, who we'll talk about later on in the show, all trading at lower cap rates, meaning higher perceived security, right there in line with some of the QSRs, actually, that we're kind of seeing. So that's the reason we bring that up. It's just kind of an interesting note there, because as far as retailers are concerned, you can always look at a retailer and find something to be optimistic about. But by and large, it seems like the overall marketplace, very, very happy with the performance of O'Reilly's Auto Parts over the last five years. Now, one of the things that they did talk about as it relates to real estate on the call was their growth in overall store count. As Leighton mentioned, they added stores this past quarter. They've added stores this past year. And CEO Greg Johnson came out and said they are still on track to open 175 to 185 net new stores for their 2022 fiscal year, noting that they still have one quarter left, of course, in this fiscal year. That keeps with the same trend we've seen from them over the past several years of unit count growth. Now, granted, at the same time they do that, Their rental costs also increase because a lot of these stores, newer builds, they carry with it higher rents per square foot. But O'Reilly's absolutely okay with that. And they plan for this growth in terms of units to be evenly spread throughout the country, just as their growth has been so far this year. In fact, all of those new stores that Leighton mentioned for this fiscal year, they've been spread throughout 40 states. So you're looking at an average of Three stores per state throughout 40 states. Pretty remarkable what O'Reilly's has managed to do. And really, their strategy has been entering more mid-sized markets where they feel they might be underrepresented. Even some smaller markets, you're seeing some new builds in. 
and then continuing to build out their urban markets with no particular area of the country as their target. And one of the things they are attempting to do with some of these newer stores is specialized stores within a market. You might have a market where one store specializes in a particular type of part or a particular genre of part, and then you have another store across town that maybe specializes in something else to make sure that inventory is always close to the customer wherever they happen to be throughout the country. Now, do-it-yourself sales for O'Reilly, they continue to be strong. This was slightly actually negative if you look versus last year, but it did outperform their expectations. And keep in mind, DIY sales for O'Reilly last year absolutely through the roof. A lot of people were, of course, at home working on cars, really catching up on some of that maintenance that they had deferred for a long time. And O'Reilly thought going into this quarter that this might suffer a little bit because there's a lot of pricing pressures there. In fact, you saw a 5.5% increase this quarter over last year's quarter in same skew prices. So as a result, they saw an increase in ticket size for the third quarter that was driven by that. And all of this is as a result of inflationary impacts and sourcing goods for O'Reilly that have been passed on to the customer. Even still, despite that, DIY customers are coming in roughly the same amount as they did last year and buying roughly the same amount as what they did last year, at least on a dollar level. Now, O'Reilly did mention that they want to kind of caution everyone here as they look ahead because O'Reilly's anticipates that continued price increases may result in some of their lower income customers who do make up a decent portion of their customer base because you talk about oftentimes a customer base that maybe might be underbanked as an example, difficult to get those used cars, difficult to get those new cars, so they instead opt to fix the car that they have currently. But some of these lower-income customers, O'Reilly's is worried that they will defer maintenance until they have enough money to be able to afford a part that might have gone up 10 to 15% because of inflation. And this could cause a potential decline in traffic, especially as some of these consumers have to make choices increasingly between essential goods at retailers like grocers and general merchandisers versus maybe fixing that auto part on their car that they feel like they can put off for two, three, four more months. Overall, though, other macro-level factors for O'Reilly's, like shortages of new and used cars, I think that's something that we haven't really talked about on the podcast, but something that's pretty well recognized throughout the country. Not a lot of new and used cars compared to where they were two years ago for various reasons during COVID, but that's keeping the sales cadence up at O'Reilly, too, despite any benefit from that government stimulus disappearing. And that is also something that O'Reilly's mentioned is that, hey, our sales to the DIY customer still maintained a pretty decent level, even though you're seeing the benefits from that government stimulus really begin to fall off. And one final thing we'll note has to do with inventory, because inventory and keeping things in stock has been a major topic of conversation for retailers all across the U.S. Yeah, right now, we'll talk about them in a little bit, but supply chain issues, of course, being really a pain point for many retailers due to some issues with docks in Long Beach, etc. As far as inventory is concerned with this company, they did see a slight increase in inventory on hand at the end of this year's quarter versus last year by about 3%. This is a positive for them as they believe their historical position of strong in stocks has really placed them in a positive light in their customers' minds. 
They've actively attempted to increase inventory levels as a result, trying to get in front of supply chain issues in an effort to stockpile. And when we say that they're trying to add inventory, it's not just at the company level. They said they wanted to expand store level inventory as well. For example, their store level inventory was up just around 1%, despite inventory gains of around 3% as a company in the last year. They would basically prefer as little product as possible sitting in their distribution centers and want it as close to the customer as possible, particularly in their stores that serve as regular hubs. Overall, their aim is to add even more in the way of inventory above and beyond this past year's slight increase and have targeted 2022 as a year in which you'll see a significant spend flow towards inventory additions. They would have done it actually a little bit sooner, but they did say much of their inventory focus has been on just keeping the store stocked with high turnover items in 2021. Currently, inventory per store sits around 633000 which is down from the beginning of the fiscal year. Yeah, it is up slightly, as you mentioned, from this time last year, down since the beginning of the fiscal year. And part of that is because of record turnover of inventory they've seen over the past couple of quarters. Some of the ratios they used to track such things, setting all-time records for the company. So O'Reilly doing a great job in terms of the sales front. Now it's just a matter of bulking up that inventory. And I think that, along with further brick-and-mortar expansion, something to watch out for for O'Reilly over the next year. Well, with that, our first news segment comes to a close. We'll be right back after this break to talk about another specialty retailer in Sherwin-Williams and whether they were able to indeed cover the world in the latest quarter. If you talk to a lot of product managers, innovators, folks that have themselves involved with startups like I do, you know how hard it is just from talking to those people for them to be sure that their next big idea will be a hit. In fact, I've got a number for you. 85% of new products fail. We're talking across the board. Huge reason for all that failure, it's too hard to validate product or market fit sometimes with consumers, no matter how much you focus group it. Sometimes you need a little bit of help. Old style market research is too slow, really hinders your entrance to market, too complicated and too expensive especially for fast-moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development and then launching to make sure you're not one of the 85% that fail? Well, that's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. You can get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test-before-you-invest product research platform It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And right now, if you go to go.feedbackloop.com slash retail, you'll get three full tests for free. I had to read that several times just to believe it. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest, build based on data and not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Once again, go.feedbackloop.com slash retail for three full tests for free. 
you can click on the link in the show notes. kick off the second half of our show with Sherwin-Williams. They deliver a slight earnings beat this week as well. By slight, we mean two cents over where analysts had them expected. But Leighton, the reason we're talking about them here today, we are both fans of this company. We know this company well, and we haven't discussed Sherwin-Williams for quite some time on the show. My show notes said about a year since we've talked about this company. Up until this quarter, they'd been reliably delivering same-store sales increases of double digits during the pandemic, but warning signs emerged as two times during this latest quarter, which was their fiscal third quarter, Sherwin-Williams issued news releases that said that they were lowering their third quarter and full year of expectations. And this came not as a result of reduced demand, but rather because they seem to be one of those businesses particularly hard hit by the supply chain challenges that have beset nearly all of retail. Most of these impacts to the company seem to stem from their industrial and pro business, although with tangential impacts to their retail stores. But as they fight to keep supply up, they announced in late September an agreement to bring online additional international manufacturers of product. The company also warned of raw materials pricing during these September updates, noting that their inflation metrics showed inflation of, get this latent, high teens versus the 3 to 5% we've seen for most consumer goods in 2021. So that's our backdrop for a third quarter where you and I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, that's right. Usually when a company lowers internal guidance twice within a span of a month, it spells disaster. But we weren't sure exactly how this would affect their retail stores, given the consistent high demand from consumers. Again, this is a company we've covered a lot in the past, a strong bellwether company. And you don't really think of Sherwin-Williams in the retail landscape, but they are really strong, especially within the home improvement landscape. Well, Trent, we got our answer overall within comps from North America. Stores came in, well, down 2.8%, hardly the disaster that we had mentally prepared for given their internal guidance. And while some of this could be blamed on lapping strong sales from last summer, the company placed most of the blame on product scarcity, saying that material availability issues had an impact to the tune of a high single digit percentage for total sales. And we should keep in mind that despite strong comps during the summer of 2020 for most of the home improvement retail industry, Sherwin-Williams's comps were just okay this last year, up 3.1%. Given that, it will be some time before they see abatement of some supply chain issues. They are taking steps in stores to attempt to counter these most recent headwinds. First, CEO John Marekis said that they have implemented price increases across most product groups to counter the gross margin hit. These price increases are expected to continue into the fourth quarter. However, he did say they expect the inflationary headwinds to subside soon, even if supply chain issues might not. In any case, their stores were hampered by lower sales volume of paint products, in part due to out-of-stocks. The company didn't know any other sales trends in their retail stores, saying that otherwise higher selling prices have offset any other volume drop. So basically, if you don't have it in stock, maybe raise the prices of the products you do have in stock. On another note, Trent, they said that while commercial felt, residential repainting did actually grow for them as a category by low single digits. However, the do-it-yourself portion of this was down double digits versus last year as a result of 
raw material availability. Again, supply chain issues, really raw material availability falling and going against tough comps from, and I quote, the nesting phenomenon from last year. Lest we think that increased product costs is just smoke blown by management, which we hear a lot of on these earnings calls, cost of goods sold absolutely ballooned for Sherwin-Williams in this last quarter. It went from being 52.1% of net sales to 58.4% of net sales. That's a 630 basis point increase year over year or on a dollar value year-over-year increase of $340.2 million in terms of those costs, those input costs for the product. They were somehow, unlike other retailers, able to keep selling general and administrative expenses in check, though. And that's despite rising labor costs in general for the retail industry. Part of this, Sherwin-Williams is benefiting from good retention in terms of their associates and staff members. They've always enjoyed that 26.6% SGNA was as a percentage of net sales this year versus 27.5% last year. Now, we talk about all these struggles, the increases in cost of goods sold, but cash flow was still strong for them company-wide. Some of this cash continued to find its way into brick-and-mortar expansion as it has for the last several years. And although their expansion hasn't been as robust as it has for, say, O'Reilly's, who we talked about in the first segment. They still managed to open a net of 16 stores, that would be 19 openings and three closures, in their Americas group during the third quarter. Their Americas group really accounting for those retail store presences. This brings their total store count to 4,824 in their Americas group, which is 66 over where they were a year ago. So you're not seeing... That 2 to 3% year-over-year expansion like you see at O'Reilly, but still gradual expansion, a gradual build-out for Sherwin-Williams, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Now, additional investments in the quarter went towards internal training, continuing to onboard more sales reps, and e-commerce. But this was interesting. This was the only time e-commerce was mentioned on the call. There was no breakdowns or sales updates there. No analysts asked about their e-commerce presence. Really, a lot of the focus on this call went towards supply chain and Leighton went towards putting on a bit of a persuasive tone because leadership stressed the same things over and over again. Yeah, multiple times. In fact, they stressed the following. The supply chain issues are upstream. That is, materials make it to Sherwin-Williams. Sherwin-Williams has ample production capacity and internal supply chain capacity to handle any increase in their customer demand. Customer demand remains robust, and they are convinced that customers aren't looking elsewhere for paint and supplies as a result of their brand strength. And I have to say, Trent, that is true. When you speak to contractors and just anecdotally, people still go to Sherwin-Williams, and Sherwin-Williams does have a really strong brand presence in no matter what market you're speaking about. An analyst, in fact, asked about the potential for customer outflow on the call. Leadership said that their brick-and-mortar presence in various neighborhood shopping centers helps to give them a more localized feel. I could not personally agree more. As such, the customer, hopefully, doesn't feel as though they're dealing with a frustrating corporate nightmare each time they attempt to navigate out of stocks. Regarding each store's interaction with professional customers, they want their sales reps to have a more partnership model with their clients than maybe a store customer 
model, as it were, emphasizing communication and updates on supply chain in an effort to be as transparent as possible with some of their most important customers. Overall, this is probably the best thing a retailer can do and at, at this time of the year, especially at this time overall with all these supply chain issues, transparency regarding out of stocks and providing information on a proactive basis rather than using a hang tag or assuming the customers will just initiate the dialogue and ask about certain product availability. In fact, after another analyst mentioned in passing that the stores were just for do-it-yourself customers and questioned the value of the physical stores, Marikas, again, the CEO, kind of shot back on the call. He said that the stores play, and I quote, a very important role in commercial, new residential, every aspect of our business, end quote. Additionally, as a veiled shot to the analyst, he said that anyone that would believe that you could accomplish what we do with the stickiness and the loyalty that we work so hard to gain without those stores probably doesn't understand what we do yet. And I think that really speaks to the importance of those physical stores, Trent, and just exactly why they keep them open and reinvest in those physical stores year after year. He went on to provide a breakdown of circumstances in which the ready availability of stores has helped contractors, especially in the quick fulfillment of products not otherwise anticipated. For example, having to change projects last minute due to some COVID issues. He said that basically they're saving painting contractors on labor because otherwise there would be an increased downtime if they were waiting two to three days for product instead of maybe just 10 or 15 minutes. The description that was used on the call was that of a, and I quote, coiled spring ready to expand, end quote, as the company anticipates the eventual abatement of supply chain issues. Additionally, leadership continued to underscore the fact that they haven't met saturation points in any market, even in large markets such as their base in Cleveland or in Dallas, where they have three figures in store counts. They have pushed back that any sort of growth plateau would be reached in the near future. The idea, as Mauricus explained, is that when they add a new store to an existing market, this is as a result of one store being saturated. So adding a new store has the effect of not just spreading out the business, but relieving that pressure and opening up the existing store to business that they might not otherwise be able to fulfill. It's kind of like an osmosis issue there for Sherwin-Williams in some of these markets. And you look, as you mentioned, Leighton, they have over 100 stores and a few different markets in the U.S. They're continuing to add to those markets, though, simply because those existing stores are having a tough time keeping up with demand, especially in higher construction markets. One other thing that I'll mention, and this was mentioned by the CFO on the call, maybe a good sign going into the next quarter for Sherwin-Williams after all the supply chain issues, but the positive is that they're not seeing the downturn at least so far in the fourth quarter as far as seasonal demand typically you see especially a lot of the contractor business and the DIY business taking place during the summer. They said so far, whether this is due to weather, whether this is due to just people continuing to try and get things repainted in the construction industry, trying to play catch up a little bit, they have not seen that downtick in terms of seasonal demand yet here in the fourth quarter. So might be a positive for Sherwin-Williams heading into the last couple of months of the year.
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We've reached the final segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead. Each Leighton and I have a story that we'll discuss here. But Leighton, before we get to your looking ahead, I did want to ask you this because we've heard so much. If you go to any retail news outlet, if you read any news outlet at all or watch any news outlet at all, you're hearing about the issues with shipping containers, the issues with ports. And, of course, you live very near one of the largest, if not the largest, port in the United States. So what are you seeing kind of on the ground there? And what's been the talk by where you're at there in Orange County? Yeah, so I I think you're speaking on Long Beach there. And I do visit from time to time. There are a lot of container ships off that are sitting in the ocean just waiting to dock. And I think a lot of it has to really be talked about in terms of the lack of labor that is on some of these shipping stations. So they need drivers to take the freight away from these docking stations and they need help there at the docks themselves. The physical labor is an extremely important component of all of this. And I think right now everyone is just so shorthanded. And if you look on our Twitter feed, sometimes I believe Trent, you've reposted some of the issues there that really are honing down on what needs to happen to alleviate some of these supply chain issues there in Long Beach. I think There are a multitude of factors. Analysts will go on CNBC all the time and talk about that it's not just labor, although that is a main driver. I would say that's probably 35 or 40 percent of the issue, but it has so much to do with the regulations that had surrounded COVID impacts in California and other issues as well that just really complicate the issue. And overall, you have around $23 billion, I believe, worth of freight that's sitting now in or on the ocean on these cargo ships and so it is not number one a simple issue and number two when they are able to hone in on the different things that are impacting the situation negatively it's going to take a lot of time to alleviate these pressures and so it's not going to be a fix that you'll see in the next few months which is why you see a lot of retailers target in particular one of our most favorite general merchandise retailers really saying that they'll do whatever it takes to get the products to their shelves just in time for this holiday season, because Black Friday, as we all know, is right around the corner. Given that note, and speaking of Black Friday, my looking ahead story is regarding a couple of earnings reports for next week. And although these earnings reports will look back, I think it's important to hear what they're saying so far about the fourth quarter. And I'm talking about earnings from Tanger Outlets and Simon Property Group, among other REITs. They'll be announcing these earnings next week. And I'm anxious to see, first of all, of course, how summer traffic held up for both. They're in somewhat different sectors, although Simon does have outlet centers as well. But I am really looking forward to these earnings calls to see what exactly leadership at these companies says about the fourth quarter coming up and what they've seen so far as far as traffic in October. By the time those earnings calls take place, it will have been November. They'll have one month kind of in the bag in Q4, so to speak. But more importantly, they'll have one month of an October that was supposed to be a very high-traffic holiday shopping month. If you've listened to the show at all over the past couple of months, you've heard us talk about these projections, about the holiday shopping season being lengthened because of the supply chain issues that Leighton just finished talking about in terms of especially bringing product in through those ports. 
So I'm anxious to see if consumers really did get a head start on their holiday season, at least as far as traffic numbers are concerned at those property groups and what they're seeing and what they're doing as well to try and make sure that traffic is driven in the last two months of the quarter in November and December, but also that they continue to keep people safe. Of course, we continue to have the specter of COVID hanging over us with the Delta variant. Many states beginning new crackdown policies as well. I know, Leighton, I'm about to travel to San Jose, California, where there's almost a universal mask mandate in that particular county. You can't go anywhere, essentially, indoors without a mask. And areas of the country differ greatly as far as that's concerned, but it seems like some of the restrictions in some areas of the country are just getting a little bit tighter. So you have to wonder if some of these property groups are a little bit concerned about that, too, especially with Black Friday traffic, as we've talked about on the show, seeing an increase over where it was last year. Well, Leighton, I know you wanted to look at the dollar store segment this week for your looking ahead. Yeah, Dollar Tree, one of our favorite retail outlets there in the United States that has nearly over 15,000 stores now and 26 distribution centers in North America. This story, I'll try to keep it short. This has to do with one hour delivery. So Dollar Tree announced that they're expanding an existing partnership with a company that we all are aware of in Instacart. Instacart's going to be adding a lot more stores to their program. Overall, Trent, this has been a program that has evolved over the last year and a half. First, it became a 275 store pilot with same day delivery. Family Dollar expanded that in early 2000. 21. So in January of 2021, they expanded that to 6,000 stores across the U.S. with that new collaboration. No longer a new collaboration, Trent. So they're gaining around 7,000 stores to around 13,000 Dollar Tree and Family Dollar stores. Family Dollar was the first, as I mentioned, to be a part of this program. Dollar Tree was added in August of 2021. So what does this mean for the consumer? Well, if you're a customer of Dollar Tree or Family Dollar, you have a Family Dollar or Dollar Tree close to you, it's probably going to mean that you can get a bunch of household items within an hour or two thanks to this same-day delivery platform via Instacart. Dollar Tree was very explicit. You can't go on Dollar Tree's site to order these items from different sectors. You have to go to Instacart. So instacart.com forward slash dollar slash tree and you can get all sorts of items, Trent. However, don't expect the same level of inventory as you would get by going into a physical store. So as we know, there are thousands of SKUs in any one Dollar Tree or Family Dollar store. On instacart.com, again, forward slash Dollar Tree, you can see that they have kitchen and dining, beauty, personal care, pets, and some bath items within each category. Let's, let's choose electronics because I'm doing this live as we're speaking right now on the podcast, Trent. If you click on electronics, there are actually only four to five items. They're all just batteries. And so I think this really speaks to how this has an opportunity to grow over time, but really also speaks to the constraint in terms of overall SKU availability that they have on their platform right now. But overall, this really speaks to the fact that they believe in this platform and the CEO had a huge positive sentiment and said that they're really trying to focus on meeting their customers evolving needs. And he said that they're pleased to expand their Instacart partnership to provide even more households across the country with convenience and value on everyday products. So when he says everyday products, it really speaks to the fact that they don't really have a broad platform, a huge amount of availability on Instacart's website. But 
it really does speak to the fact that customers, believe it or not, really want these cheaper items within one to two hours and to be on their doorstep. So I am curious as to how this is going to play out, but presumably the two pilot programs up to this point were successful. And I'm curious too, to see if they extend it out to all North American stores. They have about 2,800 more stores to roll this out to if they so desire. I hope all our listeners out there really need those batteries from Dollar Tree as well. Well, thank you, Leighton, for joining the show this week. That'll do it for us. Once again, big thanks to our partner, Feedback Loop. In next week's podcast, we'll be joined by Mike Webster of Oracle. He'll be discussing consumer trends and findings going into 2022. A few holiday trends as well from Oracle Data. So happy to have him rejoin the show. And we'll be back with you approximately seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.